Good morning. Would you join me in your Bibles in James chapter 1? James is the New Testament man from Missouri. His motto is, show me. And we see where he gets that reputation in chapter 1, verses 21 to 25, where he tells us to be doers of the Word. That if we're merely listeners to the Word and not doers of the Word, that we deceive ourselves. But then to clarify that he's not talking about being a religious do-gooder, he adds this in verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now that's interesting. James says you can deceive yourself by listening to the Word and not doing it, and you can deceive yourself by trying to do the wrong things. And then he goes on in verse 27 and says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We began to look last time we were in James at these tests for the doer of the word. It's not about religion, it's about heart. And so he gives us three tests of someone who is a true doer of the word. Test number one is in verse 26. Can I control my tongue? The tongue bone is connected to the heart bone. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So James says, if we want to analyze whether you're real or not in your faith, we need to talk first about your tongue. Just as you go in the doctor and the doctor can analyze your health by you sticking out your tongue, people can read your heart when you stick out your tongue. Second test, do I care for people who can't reciprocate? James says, I want you to have compassion for orphans and widows, people who can't pay you back, people who cannot scratch your back. Do you have compassion? Do you care for people who will never be able to reciprocate? Now, it's interesting that James is talking here in the context of trials. The first thing we're prone to do in a trial is what? Express our displeasure. We're going to vent. We're going to yell. We're going to scream. We're going to use our tongue. What's another thing we're going to do in the midst of a trial? We're going to withdraw. We're going to become filled with self-pity. We're going to turn inward. And the result is that we're not going to become interested in anybody else. Orphans, widows, I got problems of my own. See, James says if you have genuine faith, even in the midst of trials, when your life is not going right, you're going to control your tongue 
And you're going to demonstrate compassion toward people who can't pay you back. You ever visit somebody in the hospital who's had a tough diagnosis and you go there and they actually encourage you in the midst of their trial? That's what he's talking about here. Somebody who handles their tongue and has compassion even in the midst of difficulty. And then the third test of a true doer of the word is that he keeps himself unstained by the world. Now, if we're going to understand that, we need to know what the world is. So let me give you a definition of the world. The world is the system controlled by Satan who operates through unregenerate people who are enemies of God. It's the system controlled by Satan who operates through unregenerate people who are enemies of God. Now let me support that. The world is controlled by Satan. Three times in John chapters 12 to 16, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. He is the dictator. He is the one who controls the world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says of Satan that he is the God of this world. And what he is doing as the God of this world is that he is blinding men's eyes so that they won't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And how does he blind their eyes? Well, later in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, he says, Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his servants disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. So the primary way that Satan blinds men and women to the gospel is to make them religious. He is a counterfeiter. He comes along with a counterfeit gospel, a counterfeit message, a religion that is man-based. And he says, you get religious and you will miss the gospel. In 1 John 5, 19, John says, the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. We like to sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. John says, Satan has the whole world in his lap. And he's like a mother just rocking her to sleep to a spiritual slumber. He's in control. And the world, I want you to get this, the world is a system. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 says, All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's all that is in the world. These three things. The lust of the flesh would be pleasure. That's what my flesh desires, pleasure. The lust of the eyes would be materialism or possessions. And the pride of life is prestige. So you can sum up the whole world in these three little phrases. It's all about an attitude. It's all about a perspective. It's all about desires. And they are these, pleasure, possessions, and prestige. 
I want to feel good. I want to have a lot of stuff. And I want to make a name for myself. That's the world. Selfishness, greed, and personal ambition. That is the prevailing attitude of the camp that is the enemy of God. You familiar with that? The mantra is, make me happy, make me rich, and make me famous. The world is a system. I want you to understand this. Worldliness is not so much an action as it is an attitude. It's not a place, it's a perspective. We talked today about the business world. The business world in general is very open in their appeal to selfishness. You listen to the ads on TV. Have it your way. You need to get the newer, the better, the bigger, the latest, the smaller, the improved. Selfishness. Business, for the most part, is about greed. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll pollute the environment. We'll pollute our morals. We'll pollute your morals to get the bottom line. And what is the bottom line? Profit. Greed. Business is about personal ambition. People will sell their soul for the status symbol in business. They will work, struggle, fight, die for the corner office. They will work, struggle, fight, die to get their name up as a partner on the business. A group of over a thousand businessmen at Columbia University were asked, could you rise to the top of your company or organization without sacrificing your morals? And over 85% said no. We all distract ourselves with the world of entertainment. The world of entertainment is preaching a message to us. What is the message? If you want to live it up, you need to be happy, be rich, and be famous. And in the entertainment world, PG movies don't make it. You have to have crude language, violence, vice, and sexuality to send that message out. How about the world of sports? I don't even need to illustrate that one. It's full of selfishness, greed, and pride. We talk about the world of education. Education has a lot of good parts to it. But you're told the reason you ought to go to college is that over the course of a lifetime, you can make between 500000 and a million more dollars. Or you're told to, call it, to go to college because you can get a title. You can improve your name by degrees. What I want you to see this morning is that when I, as a Christian, live and love and choose the values of that system, selfishness, greed, and personal ambition, it stains me. It spots me. You see, the world is not so much an act, it's an attitude. It's not so much what I do, it's why I do it. 
A person can act very religious and be worldly. A man can become a pastor because he thinks that's a great way to make money. He's not only stupid, he's worldly. A man can become a pastor because he wants to make a name for himself. Personal ambition. It's worldliness. You ask somebody to come with you to church on Easter and they say, a lady says, well, I don't have a thing to wear. Which means what? I don't have a new thing to wear. So she doesn't come to church. Somebody else comes to church and they wear an old outfit and they're saying to themselves, I'm too spiritual to wear a new outfit. What's that? Pride, worldliness. You see, the woman who's at church is just as worldly as the woman who's not at church. Because worldliness is not a place. It's an attitude. It's a perspective. Now, how do we stay unspotted by the world since it's a system? It's a set of values. How do we stay unspotted by the world? Well, let me give you, first of all, two common misconceptions about how we stay unspotted by the world. Number one is separation by isolation. Separation by isolation. This is a common approach. The best way to combat worldliness is to withdraw. The best way to stay unspotted by the world is to get far away from the world. In the first and second century, a group of people called the ascetics took this to extreme proportions. They went far from society and lived alone. One famous ascetic in the third century was Simon Stylitis. He went into the wilderness and put up a 60-foot tall pole and lived on top of it for 37 years. He would shimmy down every once in a while to get some food or people would put up a ladder and give him some food. Stayed on a pole for 37 years to get away from the world. After 37 years, he, went, he then showed up in town and everybody wondered what had gone on. Simon had discovered something out on the pole. He was full of pride. You see, you can take the man out of the world, but you can't take the world out of the man. You cannot separate by isolation from the world because the world is a set of values. Others tried this in the monastic movement. Religious people who lived behind big walls in a monastery, separated from the world. And then they would separate from each other by having vows of silence. Thinking, if I can get away and isolate, I won't be worldly. Do we ever practice separation by isolation today? I'm going to put my kids in Christian school. And then I'm going to put my kids in Christian high school. 
And then I'm going to send my kids to Christian college. And I'm going to be at church five nights a week in the monastery. Next thing you know, the church splits. Because you can take the man out of the world, but you can't take the world out of the man. One of the telltale signs that you're practicing separation by isolation is that your Christian life is boring. You go out and live on a pole for 37 years, no contact with the world at all, guess what? It's boring. If you're practicing separation by isolation, your Christian life is going to be mundane because you are living the Christian life in the laboratory. I love the way Peter Marshall described modern-day Christians. He said they are like deep-sea divers encased in suits for many fathoms deep, marching bravely forth to pull plugs out of bathtubs. He says, you have a suit designed to be on the bottom of the ocean, and you're pulling plugs out of bathtubs. You have separated by isolation. Second misconception is separation by legalism. This one makes a lot of sense. If I want to get away from worldliness, I'll just make a bunch of rules And the longer my list, the more spiritual I am. I'll make rules for myself that will keep me farther away from those values in the world. Anybody here been in a church that's all about rules? What are some of the rules? No drinking, no smoking, no rock and roll, no dancing. No cards, no TV, no movies, no, no, no. Everybody knows that Satan played a guitar, electric guitar. He had tattoos. He had a Bud Light now and then. That's why God threw him out of heaven, right? Right? No, wait a minute. God threw him out of heaven because Satan thought he was too good for heaven. God threw him out of heaven because he thought he was too good to be under God. He was full of self-righteousness. He was full of pride. Can I say something that may shock some of you? because I'm going to shock you more later. Rules are worldly. Rules are worldly. If you have a list of do's and don'ts that you live by, it's worldly. You say, show me that in the Bible. Okay. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20. 
He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Did you get that? When you submit yourself to rules, do not, do not, do not, It is worldly. Verse 22, which all refer to things destined to perish with the use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. In other words, they look very religious. You're saying, I'm going to be really disciplined, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do that. And he he says, that looks really good from a religious standpoint. But what's the truth? Look at the end of verse 23. But are of no value against fleshly indulgence. When you make a list of rules, Paul says, it's worldly, it's self-made religion, And it is of no value in your spiritual life. Jesus' greatest critics were the Pharisees. The word Pharisee means the separated ones. They separated themselves by making all kinds of rules and regulations. They had so many rules and laws that they lived by, they couldn't count them all. And Jesus points out that their legalism led to two things, pride and hypocrisy. Remember Matthew 6? He says these men practice their righteousness to be seen by men. What is that? Pride. Jesus called them over and over again hypocrites. And he said in Matthew 23, they say things and they do not do them. They are filled with pride and even the rules they make for themselves they don't keep. Because they're of no value. I'd like to develop this point further, but I know I'm going to run out of time. In fact, I know I'm going to run out of time. So let me just tell you a couple things. And then I'll figure out how to land the plane. God never gave the law so that you would keep it. He gave the law so that you would realize you couldn't keep it and you would need a Savior. In fact, if you want to look into this, I suggest you read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Paul talks about the law and how the law is good and God gave the law. But he says, when God gave the law, the law produced in him all kinds of sin. In other words, Paul's saying, I read the law, even the Ten Commandments, I was going along pretty good, and then I got to the last one, it says, you shall not covet, and I thought, covet, wow. And he says, that produced in me coveting of all kinds. So the law was not given so that we'd keep it, you know what the law is? It's like a stir stick. You ever paint and you go, I'm going to stir this up, and all the stuff at the bottom comes up? That's what the law does. It stirs up our hearts, and it brings up all the sludge from the bottom, 
and shows us how sinful we are. That's the point of the law. If you want to try this today, go to your house, get a basket of eggs and put them out by the street and make a little handmade sign that says, do not throw these eggs at my house. I guarantee you, you will stir up sin by your legalism. Here's my rule, don't throw the eggs. You will stir up sin in someone who will say, I never thought of that. But I would love to try it. See, that's what the law does. In Romans chapter 3, he says, the law was not given to justify you. It wasn't given so that you would get a really good grade and God would let you into heaven. It was given for the knowledge of sin. It was given to show you how far you fall short of the glory of God. You see, it doesn't produce anything good in your heart. It just shows you how ugly your heart is. And it just tells you about your sin. It doesn't give you the solution. It's like when you go and look at your face in a mirror, and I got problems today, but you look at your face in the mirror and you say, there's something wrong. Well, you don't wash your face in the mirror. The mirror just has one role, and that is to show you your problem. You have to go elsewhere to wash your face. You come spiritually, you look in the mirror of the law, and the law says you're a sinner. But you can't wash yourself in the law. You have to come to Jesus Christ in faith to find forgiveness for your sin. So the law was given to show us our sin. The law was given to stir up our sin. Do you know what happens to a lot of Christians? They get saved by grace. Then they go get the law, and they say, okay, let's make some rules for ourselves, and let's start living by law. If you want to understand that concept, read the book of Galatians. It's all about that. It's all about Paul writing to a group of people. He says, you were saved by faith, and now I see you operating by works. You were saved by grace, and now I see you putting yourself under legalism. And Paul says, I'm worried about you people. Because the reflection of a Christian is not that I do a bunch of lists of things and don't do other things. It's that I walk in grace by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, if you'll read Galatians chapter 5, and I won't take the time to read it today, but it's a great passage. Read the first six verses. And there's a phrase in there that a lot of people quote. It's that idea of falling from grace. Paul says, I'm worried that you might fall from grace. Now, a lot of people take that phrase and they say, okay, Joe fell from grace. Well, where did Joe fall from grace to? They say, well, Joe fell from grace into sin. Well, let me tell you something. If you're really saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot fall from grace. And if you fall from grace, you're not going to fall into sin because grace can handle sin. Because where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Grace can handle sin. You know what grace can't handle? Grace can't handle legalism. And if you read that passage, he's worried about you falling from grace into legalism because that's how you fall out of grace. Grace doesn't mix with legalism. 
Because grace is all to the glory of God and legalism is all to your glory. That phrase, falling from grace, has been misinterpreted probably more than any other phrase in the Bible. And what Paul is worried about is not that you're going to stumble once in a while because I guarantee you, you will stumble once in a while. Grace can handle that. He's worried about you bringing your lists in and your legalism in and saying Christianity is about rules and regulations. And when you do that, you are discarding the grace of God. You see, most people think, most people think to protect me from the world, I need a safety net. And the safety net that I create will be my list of do's and don'ts. What have you done? You've created a safety net of legalism. Let me tell you something real straightforward. Legalism is not a safety net. Legalism is a snare. If you're worried about falling from grace, the last thing you need is a list of do's and don'ts. The last thing you need is legalism around you because that's the very danger that threatens grace. Separation by isolation doesn't work because the world is an attitude. It's a set of values. And separation by legalism doesn't work because that very approach is worldly and it only leads to pride and self-righteousness. So what does work? How do I keep myself set apart from the world, unspotted by the world? Look at John chapter 17 with me. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for you and me. Night before the cross, this is his prayer for you and me. And in verses 15 to 18, he's talking about himself, us, and the world. And I want you to see something here. Chapter 17, verse 15, I want to read it to you first. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now, we're going to come back to this, I think, next time because I'm not going to get finished. But I want to show you two things here. Number one, you as a Christian are to relate to the world the way Jesus related to the world. And number two, you are to be separate from the world as Jesus was separate from the world. Let me start the first one. You and I are to be related to the world just like Jesus was. Look at verse 18 again. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So, Father, just the way you've sent me out, that same way I am sending them out. So if you want to know how to relate to the world, you need to look at Jesus. What do we know about Jesus? Luke chapter 15 and verse 1 tells us how Jesus related to his society. 
says, all the, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors. They sold out their country to join Rome and collect taxes from the Israelites. Sinners were irreligious people. They were all gathering around. They were coming to Jesus to hear him. him. They were comfortable with him. They were at home with Jesus. And the next verse says, But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The religious people are grumbling. The irreligious people are comfortable. Interesting. Who's more comfortable with you? Self-righteous religious people or irreligious people? In Luke 5, 27 and following, Jesus calls a man by the name of Levi. You know him better as Matthew. He was a tax collector. He came to follow Jesus, and the first thing he did was threw a party at his house and invited all his friends over and made Jesus the guest of honor. House full of tax collector friends and Jesus. We're told the Pharisees grumbled and said, Why do you eat and drink? with the tax collectors and the sinners. Can I say something to you if you're here today and you're still on your way to becoming a Christian? Maybe there are Christians who turn you off. There are Christians who turn me off. But if you meet Jesus, he will not turn you off. And sometimes I think as Christians, we need to apologize to the world around us because we're so judgmental about what they're doing. Jesus was judgmental about the religious people. He had open heart, arms for those who were irreligious for the tax collectors and the sinners. He will never turn you off. Let me show you a couple verses. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 18. Jesus is speaking. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says, John, referring to John the Baptist, came. He had, his parents had taken a Nazarite vow, so he never drank any hard drink. And they said he's got a demon. Jesus came eating and drinking, and they said he's a glutton and a drunkard. So what's Jesus saying? You can't win. You can't win. You're going to be criticized either way. Let me tell you something. There are scores of churches today 
that would struggle with whether to let Jesus be a member or not. And I would wager there are a majority of churches that would not put Jesus into a leadership position. I don't know about this Jesus guy. He runs with the wrong crowd. He likes his wine a little too much. He frequents places I would never go. The point is, he related to the world by spending significant social time with people who didn't know God. Irreligious people. And he spent very little time with religious people. And when he did spend time with them, he condemned them. The irreligious people were at home with Jesus. They were comfortable. The religious people grumbled and criticized him. Are you relating to your society like Jesus did? When you've got a choice to put your kids in the city league or the church league, what do you do? I would choose the city league. You know why? Because you're going to get to know some families that may not know the Lord and build relationships with them and teach your son or daughter how to be a Christian example in a setting like that. You're going to have a block party or a church party at your house? I suggest have a block party. Invite your neighbors and bring a few people from church who can handle it and bring your friends in. Let them be exposed to those who have a heart for God. We went to uh, Saffron's the other night and we were coming out and we had parked down the way and we're walking along the sidewalk and I see this little place called Primo Vino. And there's some nice tables out there, and there's people sitting there having glasses of wine outside on the table. It just looked lovely place. So I say to my wife, why don't we go in and have a glass of wine, and we can meet some of these people? And she said, yeah, right. We got enough problems. People are going to say, oh, the pastor is having a glass of wine. You know, it got me thinking. Am I concerned about what people say? Or am I concerned about relating to and reaching lost people? What would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Jesus related to people where they were. And I got to thinking, you know, what would an unbeliever say if we sat down at the table, had a glass of wine, introduced ourselves, began to talk? They would probably say, well, I thought a Christian 
was somebody who kept rules and regulations. I thought a Christian was somebody who didn't do this and didn't do that and did this and did that and kept rules and stayed away and climbed on poles 60 feet high. They might really get the message that we say all the time, which is what? Christianity is not a religion, it's what? A relationship. But if all I do is keep rules and regulations, what am I saying to that person? Christianity is religion. Because I can't come near you, I've got to get back on my pole and stay away. So if you see me at uh, Primo Vino, check your pharisaical pulse before you say anything. I'm going to stop there because I've got a lot more to say. And I don't want to rush it. So we'll pick this up next time. Today we're going to take communion together. A great reminder to us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's not about legalism, it's about grace. Because this is the expression of grace, the cross of Jesus Christ. That he died in your place. He bore the sin that every one of us committed and offers us full and free and forever forgiveness through the work he did on the cross. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to have us come today and take the bread and the cup. If you're not a member here, you're welcome if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ because that's all that matters. And let's celebrate grace today. And then let's go forth and exhibit that grace to those around us who need to experience God's grace in their lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he loved us enough that he willingly gave his life in our place. Father, we can never measure how much that costs. We see him in the garden sweating blood over the price he had to pay and yet still saying, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I pray today that you would exalt the Lord Jesus Help us to get a grasp of what grace is and what grace means in our lives. And Lord, as we take the bread and the cup, we celebrate that and praise you, and I pray that we would leave here as people who exhibit your grace in our lives, not just in our religious activities, but in our heart, in our tongue, in our compassion, and in our relationship to those who don't know you. Move us and change us today, we pray. In Jesus' name.